Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I'm a woman in successful long-term recovery from alcohol addiction, and I'm the author of a blog called Unpickled. I tell my story there, and uh, that includes all five-plus years of it, starting on day one. And then I invite you to tell your stories here. And today we will hear from a longtime blogger and recovery advocate, Louise Rollingson, author of A Hangover Free Life. She also has an ebook by the same name and an online course and more. And she joins me today to talk about her experiences as a woman in recovery and as a nurse who's worked with those suffering from alcohol induced illnesses. Louise, welcome to the Bump Flower. Thanks, Jean. So glad that you're here. And uh, and you are all the way across the ocean, so um, I'm just excited that we've been able to connect at all because sometimes the Internet doesn't cooperate. But I love how we're globally, internationally, all uh, sharing our experiences. So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. It really is. Now, you and I have sort of been traveling uh, parallel paths for a while because we both entered the blogging world not too um, far apart, and um, my blog has really focused on my personal experience. But for you, as a medical professional, you have um, really um, uh, taken that to become the focus, I guess, of your blog. So. I'm just going to have you go back right now and tell me a little bit about your experiences, you know, before alcohol was really problematic in your life and how things sort of progressed and changed for you over time. Okay, so um, I grew up in a um, heavy drinking household, so both my parents were daily drinkers. So um, I always had um, kind of an ambivalence about alcohol because it, I'd seen it create such a kind of Jekyll and Hyde effect in the people around me. So, um, I, I, I mean, you say before I had a problem with alcohol, but I, I suspect that I've always had a problem with alcohol in that even when I did start to drink tentatively at the age of kind of 17, um, I was on one part very scared of it, but um, on the other side really exhilarated by the effect that it had and um, its ability to kind of take me away from any problems or feelings I was struggling with at the time. So I think I've probably always drank kind of alcoholically. I've always looked to um, change the way I feel and um, to escape. Um, So I started drinking when I was about 17, um, I trained as a nurse when I was 21, and um, being a student nurse, um, it was a very hard-drinking, hard-living lifestyle. We played hard and we worked hard, 
um, and I surrounded myself um, with lots of other drinkers just like me. So um, alcohol has always been part of my life as long as I can remember. Um, and so I qualified. Um, I was just working on a general ward. And I think I, I never thought I had a problem with alcohol because I could always kind of manage it around my, my work shift. Um, and I went through my 20s in that way. Um, the partners that I always hooked up with always drank at a similar level to me. So it was very normalized in all the people around me. Um, and it was only when I kind of settled down with my partner now and was actually working on the alcoholic liver disease ward that I began to suspect that maybe there was something problematic in the way that I drank. Um, that said, all the girls and boys I worked with on that ward were also very hard drinking. There was a lot of recreational drug taking going on, but we would often leave a very hard shift looking after alcoholic liver disease patients with the belief that we weren't like them. Our denial was very truly in, um, in place, and we would then go out and sink pints after a late shift, you know, into the early hours of the morning and drag ourselves up to go to an early shift. So, um, And even amongst colleagues where we could see that there was a problem developing and that their drinking was, you know, tipping over into kind of really, really problematic um, drinking. There was still a huge amount of denial uh, amongst us as professionals that, that that would happen to us. So it wasn't until um, I, after I had children that I, it, it became really problematic in that I couldn't just indulge as often as I wanted to. I was having to get up and look after small children. It was making me very grumpy. Um, and when I was, um, when was it? When I was, my both my children were very small. We moved to France for a year. And um, I think that's when the wheels really, really fell off because neither of us were working. We had two small children. We were in France. I mean, who doesn't drink wine when you're in France? So, um, yeah, there was there was no limit to how often or how much we could drink, and things kind of got really out of hand. Um, we came back from France, and at that point, I think both of us realised, because both of us have stopped drinking. Um, my husband stopped six days before I did, and we've been on the sober journey together. So I think we came back from France in 2008, and at that point, we both started to try and manage our drinking. So I think we probably spent five years trying to moderate it, playing all the games that you play, putting all the rules in place that, you know, to try and manage how much we drank and just failed repeatedly. Um, and there were two events that happened um, in 2013, well, end of 2012 and then beginning of 2000, uh, middle of 2013, I went to a, a nursing reunion um, where I trained in Exeter um, it was a 20-year reunion, and I met with a, a girlfriend before the actual reunion um, who wasn't in my set, um, but I hadn't seen for a while, and I'd driven down that day, and it's a six-hour drive from where I live, and I hadn't eaten very much, and we went out and hit the town immediately at four o'clock in the afternoon, and we were knocking back, you know, bottles and bottles of white wine, and by the time I got to the reunion, I was absolutely shit-faced, excuse my language, um, I can't really remember very much of it. And I made a complete and utter kind of fool of myself in front of all of these people. Don't remember going to bed. Don't remember getting home. And just remember waking with just the most excruciating shame the following day and just thought, I can't believe I've done this. And to put that into context, I'd actually been on one of my 
moderating sessions before that and I hadn't actually had a drink for six weeks so I hadn't drunk and then I'd not eaten and I'd gone out and it was just disastrous so that happened and then the following May we went to um, a family barbecue in the village and they were great hosts and it was a beautiful day and all the children were running around playing together and you know it was a lunch and it was a long lunch and there was lots of wine and by 7.30 again I was just in a real state put myself to bed on the sofa um, my husband and I finally and we walked there because it was in the village and I was canning off verges and just you know making a complete ass of myself in front of my, my children and kind of crawled upstairs and put myself to bed. And, and I have a memory of my own family when I was very small, of my mum getting really, really drunk. And I, was, I wasn't that small, actually. I was probably about 10 or 11. And she passed out cold on a mattress in the middle of the, the garden where we were staying at the time. And I remember being really, really terrified that, she, that something was terribly wrong with her. And I was really, really anxious and really upset. And um, the next day when I came to, I was just absolutely horrified that I had done the very thing I said I wouldn't do, which was make a, you know, make a state of myself and my kids. And so for me, that was kind of, that was the tipping point. I didn't lose any jobs. I didn't get a DUI. I'm very high functioning. But um, for me, that was the line that I had promised I would never cross, and then I'd crossed it. And so, I mean, I'd like to say I gave up then and there, but that's not how it works with us guys. So um, that was in the May, and I finally gave up in the September. We just said, both of us, this, is, this just isn't working. And out of pure desperation, just said, shall we just stop and, you know, and see what happens? And that was it. We just stopped. Um, so that was September 2013. So it's 1,213 days today since I had a drink. Yay. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, as a professional, I, you know, it's so interesting to me that no one is exempt from this, right? Um, there are people uh-huh. that seem to be able to handle it, but if if you've got the the genetics for addiction and, you know, even with all the knowledge and the professional background you had, was it, did you really fight against that? Like, was it hard to accept that even with, everything you know and the work that you did that that you could you were still eligible for this disease um i think i i think it's another layer of um kind of professional denial for sure i mean um my um, biological father is an alcoholic my stepfather was an alcoholic um i had nursed people to you know to death because of alcohol so it wasn't like I didn't know what the damage that it could do I'd I'd nursed it up close and personal many many times but I I think it's just part of that um, belief that uh, those of us in addiction have in that we're just different aren't we it's it's not us it never applies to us we're different in some way Um, Mm. and I think I, I, I genuinely believed you know that no 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 it couldn't this couldn't possibly be true for me um, and so, yeah, I just stuck my head in the sand and, and hoped that it would go away, and it just it wasn't going to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is, it is really interesting that, you know, as professionals, we're just as at risk as anybody else, really. It doesn't matter how much you know or um, all the skills you have. It's, you know, it's no, it, it, it doesn't care who you are or where you come from. It really doesn't. 
So when you decided to just quit, you and your husband, did you mm-hmm. pull out any tools from your toolbox, from from um, everything you knew about sobriety and recovery? What did you do to employ, you know, a, a plan within your life? So in all those times of moderating, um, I had stopped for anything between sort of a month and three months at a time. So I'd already had, you know, um, since of, of, do, of managing successfully through 30 to 90 days. And I had um, done all sorts of things. I'd um, had loads of herbal teas in. Um, I already knew kind of the supplements to take because of my professional career anyway. So all of those things were utilized. But then I also remembered some things that I'd done when I was pregnant with the children because, of course, I had to stop drinking then. And I did quite successfully. Um, so I remember that when I, I remembered when I was pregnant that I would quite often just go for a very, very long soak in the bath. Um, and that was my way of kind of decompressing. And so that um, became kind of my go-to way of switching off. That and bed, actually, going to bed. So if I was just really struggling, just go to bed. Um, so the bath and my bed became my kind of cocoons that I um, just remembered using very successfully when I was pregnant. So... Um, so yeah, those those really helped. And I'd done a lot of um I'd trained as a, a public health nurse and I'd worked as a school nurse and I used to do um smoking cessation training. So I knew a lot of the tools that they use um for kind of behaviour change. So I used a lot of those to kind of help me um in the early days. But it wasn't until I got past three months that I really struggled because that was new ground to me before I'd managed kind of short stints and um and at that point, it was when I discovered yourself, I started to read your blog. Um, I found Belle at Tired of Thinking About Drinking, and I started writing my own blog. So there two um, tools that I, I used um, on the final um, quit attempt. So, yeah. Now, how did your recovery affect the way that you related to the people that you're looking after professionally? Do you have new insight and compassion for people in sobriety? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think all of us on the ward were always very um, were always very compassionate. I mean, I, you know, I would like to think that most nurses are, are very compassionate by nature because of the, the nature of the work that we do. Um, I think we always found it incredibly, um, just incredibly sad. Um, we would see the same um, patients coming in repeatedly and they would be would be getting, you know, slowly worse um, as their condition deteriorated. And we would always say, you know, what happened? You know, how can we do this differently? Um, it was just it was just heartbreaking, really. And you know, when they would come in to finally die, you know, all of us would just be really, really kind of bereft on their behalf that, you know, there was nothing that we could do or anyone could do to kind of break the spell that alcohol seemed to have over them. So um, I think we were always, well, I certainly always felt very compassionate towards them, but having, yeah, having, being being one of them, yeah, it absolutely um, increased my level of compassion um, for them and, you know, reduced some of the frustration that we used to feel. Cause I think we also used to get quite frustrated that, it, it, you know, nothing seemed to, to help, um, and that was really hard to watch. So, And I'm curious as well, have you talked about your addiction and recovery with your children, and what's their awareness and their insights? 
That's a really good question. So um, my children are nine and ten. Um, I haven't. We haven't directly them about addiction and recovery. However, they are um, very um, watchful for children, and they have noticed um, that we don't drink. Um, they notice when other people drink around us. So. Um, it's, although it's not openly kind of acknowledged and discussed, that I think I think they know we've just never. But I think the reason we haven't broached it directly is because I think we've both felt that they're still a little bit young to really try and explain to them in too much detail without burdening them with you know. Um, and maybe this is my own me projecting my own stuff out, but you know, burdening them with the concerns that they too may also have inherited, you know, or genetically. Um, inherited this and and that it's something that they should worry about so for the minute we just try and role model with our actions and if they ask questions we we answer it but no we haven't really openly discussed it with them although it will be something we will need to do as they get a little bit older that's you know age appropriate um information is is a good thing to be aware of like i think sometimes parents are so excited that they've made this big change in their life especially if they grew up with an alcoholic parent um, the excitement of knowing, like, my children's life is going to be different, and um, I could see how it would be tempting to just, like, uh, mm-hmm. overshare out of excitement for what, how this will affect their life. But you're right, it has to be age-appropriate um, and mindful of their development, too. Yeah, there's a really good book. Um, who's, the lady who wrote it, her name escapes me, but it's called Conscious Parenting. Is it Mindful Parenting or Conscious Parenting? And she talks a great deal about um, about enmeshment and clear boundaries and how, yeah, like you say, oversharing is actually about our stuff and not necessarily about their stuff. So, yeah, mm-hmm. she's, she's been a really good guide. I, I want to pipe in, too, and say I had a really interesting conversation with my therapist recently asking her, you know, here I am I, working away on myself, trying to undo little little hurts that my parents left in my heart, you know, despite their best intentions. Mm-hmm. And what do I do now as a parent of adult children myself? How do I, how do I fix this mm-hmm. for them? How do I, you know, I, I'm sure I made mistakes with them. How do I fix it? And she was like, it's not yours to fix. You know, the little, the little wounds we have, that's each individual's to fix, and that's how we grow. So... I think knowing, too, that it's not always up to us to go back and repair all the damage, but hold space for it and enable it is um, is really our job as parents. Like you say, not to make it about making ourselves feel better, but really creating the space to empower our children to repair whatever little wounds they may have that can grow into big wounds if they're not tended. But I want to move on. Yeah, uh, and Oh, I just—I wanted to ask you about your book. Um, I noticed it pops up as a as a download on your website. So tell me a little bit about the book that you created. So, um, as I say, I used to work uh, as a school nurse, and as part of that role, I um, delivered the smoking suspicion training program that the NHS roll out here, and massively—they've um, made great. Um, moves forward in reducing the number of smokers in this country and I was really struck by how there's so much support people if they stop smoking but there's absolutely nothing if you stop drinking. Um, and in this country, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but here 
there are alcohol brief interventions that a GP will do if you go and discuss um, problematic drinking with them. Um, but then there's nothing here until you are physically addicted and you need either rehab or a hospital admission. So there's this, I just noticed this enormous space um, with no kind of um, support at all. So the booklet that I put out is, is basically exactly the same as the one that's um, used in, the, in this country for smoking, but it's just been completely adjusted um, for drinking, including some of the drugs that are available to support um, people's attempts to either cut down or stop. So um, things like uh, acamprosate and um, antabuse and nalmefen, which you can, you can get on prescription here. Um, it also talks a little bit about the drugs that are used um, as part of alcohol um, detox programs. So if you are physically uh, addicted to alcohol, as everyone knows, you shouldn't stop on your own. You should really um, make sure that you have a medically overseen um, detox. And the drugs that they use for that are things like Valium or Chlordyze epoxide. So it talks a little bit about um, the type of drugs that you might um, be offered if you were to have a kind of proper detox. So just to give people... Some, some very simple um, tools that they can they can start to get them on the road really and then at the back there's a whole load of um, further reading lists so um, all the books that I've read or some, a lot of the books that I've read so including Anne Dalsett Johnson's book Drinking which is very good and then a list of resources um, including the Bubble Hour um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, no, you're welcome. So other places where people can go to find further information. So Living Sober, Mrs. D's Community, Alcoholics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, just anything that will be um, alcohol-free product suppliers. So, um, yeah, anything that might help people to either cut down or stop drinking. So, yeah, that's it's just a very simple booklet, really. Well, it's very well done. And... Um... I'm also always amazed, you know, I've followed your blog, I think, since the very first day you started it, to be honest. Yay! And I'm all, Thank <laughs> you. I, so I'm really excited that we're talking after all these years. I love the connection. It's just so cool. Um, I'm amazed at how uh, you must do so much research or just have access to so much good information because you are forever posting you know, really interesting studies and articles. And do you spend a lot of time in this realm? Um, is it a labor of love? Or how does it feel for you on your end as an advocate and a health professional who makes this the focus of her life? Um, I think in the beginning, the, the amount of blog posting was actually about, um, rather selfishly, about my own recovery. And it was about keeping me very embedded in the kind of process um, and so I read um, voraciously anything I could lay my hands on, really. Um, I have to say, as time has gone on, the urge to post as frequently is, is waning. And actually, there's, there's less information. I've, I've mined so much in such a short period of time that, um, that you tend to see the same news stories coming through again and again now. Um, so there's, there's less and less to discover. But because um because I have a psychology degree, because I have a, some postgrad qualifications in counselling, because I'm very I'm personally very interested in the kind of feeling and emotional recovery element of it. It's stuff that I just love to read personally anyway. And if I find anything that I think might be useful, then I just think, well, 
rather than just read it myself, I may as well post it and, and hope that someone else gains from it too. So um, it's been a really big part of my own recovery journey. Um, we, you know, I, I know how important it is um, to give back. Um, that's why I volunteered at a drug and alcohol treatment centre, which also gave me, you know, another avenue for more information to, to learn for myself and to share on the blog. So, yeah, just I'm I'm always up for anything that's going to improve my um, my knowledge and therefore help others if I share it on the blog. So, yeah, I really really enjoyed doing it. Actually, really enjoyed doing it. So. Do you find that the feedback and the connection from others affected you in ways that you didn't expect when you started the blog? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the person who first, res the first comment I ever received was from Mrs. D, Lotta, in uh, New uh. Zealand. And I rem yeah, and I remember getting really tearful at the time that someone <laughs> was taking the time and trouble to respond. Um, and I I find the connections just just so um, so supportive and um, just so special. So on Sunday I went into London and um, went to this really cool uh, vegan alcohol free uh, restaurant stroke bar called Redemption in Notting Hill. And um, and I met for lunch, I met Primrose from Taking a New Path. I met Claire from Green and Sober. I met Carrie from Carry on Sober. Um, wow. so there was five, five of us, five sober bloggers who have all, we worked out, we had 15 years of sobriety around the table, but um, Claire's got two years, uh, Carrie's got four years, uh, Prim and I have three years, Victoria, who was there, she has three years. So, yeah, it was have known these people if it wasn't for the blog um so it's just it's wonderful how the, the virtual has spilled over into real life um and you know these people i count as, as very dear friends now so i'm you know i'm always eternally grateful to what i've gained from the blog that's amazing isn't it i whenever i meet people whether it's other bloggers or readers or just women in recovery there's such a bond and such a uh, it's, I want to say it's an unspoken understanding, but of course it's never unspoken. We can't stop talking when we get together. But there's something really powerful that happens when we connect with other people who understand our most secret part of ourselves in a way that you know no one else could if they hadn't been through this. I love that. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, and and actually this group, this particular group of us, have been meeting now for three years, so. Um, and different people have come and have come and gone. So we invite many more, and if they can't make it, that's fine. We just those who can make it go. And so we were all saying on Sunday that it's just so um, it's just so wonderful to see how much each of us has grown in the last three years. How much more confident we've become. We kind of laugh at, at how we were when we were, when we all first met. How nervous we were, and how shy, <laughs> and how kind of embarrassed because you know. And how you know we we all met up and none of us had two heads and it was all very reassuring and yeah it was just it was yeah it's been a it's been a wonderful group of friendships so yeah it is just amazing absolutely amazing. I felt a shift when I was blogging too that as you say initially you know I think almost all of us that start blogging do it as sort of an accountability tool and a and a, a our own life raft, you know, to try and yeah. put our stories out there and get comfortable telling the truth. It's very much about our own recovery, but I pretty quickly felt a shift to where 
I had no idea that I would help others by telling my story. I really had no concept of that, partly because I was so self-centered and wrapped up in my own junk that um, I didn't really think anyone else had problems like mine. I thought I was pretty special. I thought people might read it out of interest, but certainly not because they were like me. And and then as as within a very short amount of time, started to realize that this blog was not just helping me, it was helping other people. And it just it turned the whole thing on its ear, and it actually empowered me even more. Like helping other people is a really powerful part of staying sober, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, it was one of the reasons why I started volunteering at 12, that was, that was a, again, it was a bit selfish thing. I just thought I need to um, I need to spend a day a week around other people in recovery because, um, as, as you know, you know when you're around everyone normally, you you don't really talk about recovery. It's something that you, um, I'm not quite shy about. I'm quite protective of, and it, I just need to be around other people where it was. I was able to talk about it freely and really celebrated and um, so although I was helping them out it was also helping me out enormously um, to have somewhere where I could go in and say it's 1,000 and they were all like yay you know where it was a <laughs> big deal and they knew it was a big deal so that was really valuable really valuable so can anyone just walk in and volunteer at a rehab facility or were you able to do it because of your medical training um, no, I think they always welcome any type of volunteer. Um, but I mean, I think my medical training probably are useful to have around. But um, there were, were plenty of other people volunteering um, that didn't necessarily have medical background. So yeah, I think I think welcome support from anybody who's um, who's keen to involved. So yeah, if, if you know if that's one way of giving back that you want to get in, engaged in, for sure, reach out and see what they say. I can't see why they would turn them away. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the uh, online course that you created. So, again, it was a, it was about the fact that there was um, this gaining hole um, of, you know, we've never physically addicted to alcohol and and it was one of the reasons that I stopped because I, I knew that I was getting very early symptoms of physical addiction. And I knew they were because I worked in the field. So I, there was that I couldn't avoid. I knew they were. Um, and so I, I knew I had to stop. But I knew that there was this big hole in the market that if you weren't physically dependent, if you were psychologically dependent, which is how I consider myself, um, there was nothing out there to support you. No one else. Um, I mean, there were communities were, that were starting. So Soberistas had started here about a year before I stopped drinking. Um, and other, other communities. And obviously AA has always been there. Um, but um, there was no kind of courses or there's nowhere you can go in the NHS. Um, and so, again, very much you know, stealing the ideas of the smoking cessation programs. Um, I just thought I'm going to put together this program that just covers um, a bit about uh, behavior, behavior change, so the change process. I just wanted to put out all the information that I knew about alcohol itself, so the actual toxic, poisonous drug and how it works and the impact it has on the brain and the impact it has on the body. So all the things that I had experienced firsthand as a nurse, I wanted to put it all in kind of educational format. I wanted to, you know, give people... 
um, a guide to moderating if you want to try moderating, because I think for many of us, that's part of the journey. We can't exclude moderating. It's not something I would ever go back to, but I think for me, it, you know, the, the trying to manage it and failing spectacularly is part of the journey, and we have to recognize that. Um, and things like thinking about stopping, preparing to stop, all the physical benefits from stopping, all the psychological benefits, because I did... Um, a course of CBT when I had been sober for about eight months and 20 weeks of CBT, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. And uh, the reason I started it was, um, if I'm truly honest, was that I thought that my drinking was actually a fault in my thinking. <laughs> I mean, I laugh about it when I, when I think about it now. And if I could just straighten out my thinking, I could probably go back to it, <laughs> which is just ridiculous. But that was my thing at the time. And of course, I did the 20 weeks and discovered that actually, no, it had nothing to do with my thinking. It was a much bigger issue than, than that. And um, so, yeah, all the psychological um, impacts and all the things I learned in CBT are in the psychological bit. And then there's a bit about, you know, the kind of social aspects, um, alcohol-free beers, you know, places that you can go, um, communities you can hook into, recovery movies recovery documentaries on YouTube, um, and then a bit about relapse prevention. So I tried to cover kind of the whole circle, cycle of drinking, um, so that if people wanted to go somewhere, and just, it's, a, it's a platform where you, you pay a one-off fee, and then you have a lifetime access to it. Um, I keep mine updated fairly regularly, so any new information that comes out, I include it on the course. Um, so if people just want all of the educational information about drinking and alcohol and its impact, then I just wanted to, to create it so that it was there and you to be allowed, allowed me to do that. The book and the course were just two things that I felt I had to put out there. Even if nobody, nobody signed up to it, I just felt I had to put it out there. Um, but uh, as it stands, in the two years since I've created it, there's... Um, 592 people, I think, have signed up for it. Um, so, yeah, it has, again, it's proved useful for people, and, and now it's done, I, you know, it's, people can use it if they want to. So, yeah. It's How long does it take to, do. to move through the material? Is it um, something you can work so, at for um, a long period of time? Yeah, well, you can do it in one hit, and it will really take you, I don't know, because it's videos and it's, um, handouts, um, it's downloadable PDF, so you could probably do it in in a day, six, four, yeah, four, five hours in one hit if you wanted to. But it's also dependent if you're, you know, if you're sure about um, what what your journey is. You can do it in fits and starts. You can go back to it and rework sessions if you need to. So yeah, you can dip in and out as you need to. So you can you can take as long or as or do it as quickly as you wish. So, but yeah, you could probably do it in half a day and 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 do the whole lot. Um, yeah, that's great. That's an excellent resource. So all of these things are available on your blog, which is a hangoverfreelife.com. Yep. It is. Com. It is. And yeah. um, I want to go back to something you mentioned, which is moderation versus abstinence. And yeah. you know, I think on this show we we're big believers in in abstinence based recovery, but the the benefit of talking about moderation is that for a lot of us it's almost like a diagnostic tool like yeah. we it I don't know very many people who didn't at least try to moderate before they realized yeah. you know I mean if you if you have an addiction moderation is hell 
if you don't have an yeah. addiction, moderation is possible. So the benefit of it can be almost diagnostic in a way. Um, do you see it as all as a management tool for someone who is addicted, or do you see it more as a diagnostic tool? No, I'm with you. I think it's a, it's a kind of rule in, rule out. If you can if you can moderate, you probably don't have a problem. Um, but if you know, I think most of us. Uh, delude ourselves that we can moderate and it's the repeated failure that tells us that actually it, this is not doable and yet yeah, it's a diagnostic so um, I mean I'm aware of the likes of moderation management and Audrey Kishline and all that kind of stuff but I, it's not it's something there are those who believe that they're you know, drinking but to me that just sounds like hell on earth so why, mm-hmm. why would I bother right <laughs> you know, I agree if I, too if I can't, you- yeah do you see addiction as a spectrum, though? Like, does moderation work for people that are sort of at the very early stages of the spectrum that just haven't crossed a line? Is that is that how it works? Do you think? I, that's, I mean, that's not how. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think um, one of the things that I always found most scary about, um, or find most scary about alcohol addiction, is is how. You know, you think you're you're going along quietly, managing your drinking, and then oops, you cross the line and you're physically addicted, and the switchover happens so quickly, and you have no warning, and um, that's one of the things that yeah always terrified me. Um, so no, I I, th- I think I I think we all probably like alcohol a great deal and and try and keep it under control but we just work our way it, it gets worse eventually i think it's it's not impossible to control i think because of the nature of the substance it's an addictive substance and as it becomes more and more um embedded in our neural networks that it's our go-to you know uh switch off relaxation whatever and and that neural network gets you know that pathway gets bigger and bigger and bigger um, it becomes more and more difficult to manage. So um, no, I, I I don't think uh, I, I I still struggle with it. Is it as is it a disease model? I'm not sure. I see it as a biopsychosocial. So there is a genetic element, there is a psychological element, and there is an environmental element. And it's a and also if you if you've experienced trauma um, as an adult or as a child, if you've got uh, underlying mental health issues. These are all factors that will add up to increase your risk to um, substance uh, misuse and addiction risk. Um, so no, I think yeah, moderation is a diagnostic, and um, I, I think we all eventually get into trouble because of the nature of the substance. So. You know, you mentioned Mrs. D earlier, and when we interviewed mm-hmm. her on this show a few years ago. She said something yeah. that really struck me, which was, you know, why are we surprised that anyone gets addicted to alcohol? Alcohol is addictive. Like, yeah. the surprising thing is that anyone can drink it without getting addicted. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it, it, really, I've been t- telling people this a lot lately in the comment section of my blog when they say, I wish I could drink like a normal person. I remind them, listen, alcohol is addictive. It's normal to get addicted to it the same way as cigarettes or crack, you know? <laughs> When yeah, someone starts yeah, smoking, we, we don't say, oh, you're abnormal for getting addicted. We know if someone starts smoking, they're going to become dependent on it. And um, so we, I think we need to flip it around and recognize that the, the people who are really 
having an abnormal response to alcohol are people that can use it without becoming addicted. And we need to stop seeing ourselves as deficient or, or broken because we're not like that. The truth is we're responding pretty normally, and the problem is that society expects us to be otherwise. So. Yeah, yeah, completely agree, completely agree. We're so backwards in our thinking, and I really believe that it's advocates like like you and every other guest that comes on this show and every blogger that talks openly about their recovery that hopefully, you know, over the next decade, we can change the way we look at this um, and really become much more realistic and and, um, uh, open about it. I really think... The the more we hide it and, and are ashamed to talk about it, the more we let other people wrongly assume what what's true. And um, so I really am am grateful for your willingness to to share your personal and professional knowledge. It's it's really great. I yeah, want to ask. And I, I mean, go on. go ahead, Lou. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, without wishing to get me on my my favorite hobby horse as a public health nurse one has to acknowledge the power of the alcohol and drinks industry and the role that they play in shaping how society perceives alcohol and those who have a problem with alcohol because, you know, they are the ones who are keen to to frame it that um, people with a problem with alcohol are the minority and that most people can drink responsibly when actually their substance, you know, is entirely you know, involved and their heavy marketing, you know, plays a very big part in culturally how we perceive alcohol. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Especially to women. I mean, we are, they're moneymakers right now. We're the, we're the growing demographic and, um, and Delta Johnson's book, Drink, talks very eloquently about the pinking of the alcohol industry and, um, the sort of normalization of, I believe she calls it the alcogenic society that we live in, and um, that's a really good read for that. We have, uh, in the minutes we have left, I would like to hear about um, the um, uh, designation you're pursuing right now. You're doing some pretty interesting grad work right now on uh, uh, adolescent psychotherapeutic counseling. Tell us about that. So I... um, as part of, well, in the last couple of years, I've done a, a post-grad um, diploma in education at the University of Cambridge, and um, it's in child and adolescent psychotherapeutic counselling, um, which is because I trained as a, a public health nurse and a school nurse. But when when we came to do our final dissertation, it was um, really hard for me to take my alcohol and addiction hat off, and um, and so the uh, the question that I asked was about the link between insecure attachment, um, alexemia, and addiction in adolescence. So I'll, I'll explain that. So um, attachment theory is a, um, a developmental psychology theory um, by a guy named Bowlby in the 50s. And their belief is that uh, as, as babies and children, we develop uh, an attachment type that is Um, shaped by our relationship with our primary caregiver and depending on how we experience that relationship um, then uh, decides how we view relationships in general so you end up developing what's called a theory of mind and that's about how you see yourself how you see the other and how you see the relationship between the two now those people who have had 
difficult childhood for whatever reason um, may not have um, what they call a secure attachment, which is which is the the kind of the the, the normal kind of um, preferred attachment type where you see the world as benign and people as helpful and um, there are those that end up with what's insecure attachments and there are two types that well there's three types actually there's insecure um, avoidance insecure ambivalent and then there's something called disorganized attachment and if you have an insecure avoidant with my particular attachment style because of my parenting experience um, there's some research that has linked that with something called aleximia and aleximia is the posh word for the inability to describe or identify feelings and to connect feelings to um, feelings in the, in the mind, so cognitive feelings, feelings in the body, so somatics. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of theory that if you have an insecure attachment and you are unable to express your feelings, there is a higher likelihood that you will use substances to self-medicate um, both the attachment dysfunction and your inability to um, express emotions. And um, as I'm sure you're probably working out, this turned out to be, be a bit of a self-study, really, um, because uh, I have an insecure attachment type and I, I considered myself kind of emotionally constipated, shall we say. And alcohol was very good um, at keeping a lid on that because... If ever I was feeling emotional, I would drink to numb those emotions. Um, if I was feeling that I needed help to express my emotions, I would use alcohol to disinhibit myself. To and I would and I would argue that I needed it to um, to express my emotions. Um, so there's a there's a lot of research that's been done about substance use, misuse and disorders, alexemia, and addiction. Um, sorry, and attachment in adults, but very little done around child and adolescence. And my my question was if if we had services that were targeted very specifically at adolescents, so that they would have the opportunity to um, experience and have role models to them a secure attachment relationship with a, a counselor or a therapist or a, a supportive um, therapeutic team that they, might, that they might be able to repair their attachment um, relational damage and that they would be able to learn how to um, describe and identify emotions safely and if those two things happen that they might be less likely to become dependent on drugs and alcohol or that their dependency would be less severe um so that was kind of a hypothesis wow and that's, um that is that's a game changer that's a world changer <laughs> Well, it, interestingly, it's um, it's a really it's a really under-researched area, which is another reason why I did it. So, in child and adolescence, there's there's only four papers that have been written so far about the subject, and um, there's a, a researcher called Professor Thorberg who um, worked over in Queensland, Australia, but is currently in Finland, and he's written like 20 papers on. Um, 
uh, alexamia and addiction in adults. And I emailed him as part of my research saying, you know, is there anything on child and adolescence? And he came back to me and said, no, this is a massively under-researched area. I was talking to somebody at Yale and they were thinking about doing it too. And they were, you know, there's very little. Um, so that was kind of the, the, the motivator to, to do it really was because it's such an under-researched area. And really, really excitingly, um, there is a service that's actually uh, implementing uh, an approach that's proving to be very successful, and it's just down the road from where I live. So, um, there's a, uh, yeah, ironically, so there's a service in um, Cambridge called CASIS, which stands for Child and Adolescent Substance Misuse Service. These are increasingly rare services in the UK because of um, the underfunding of child and adolescent mental health services generally and the funding crisis that the NHS is engaged in on an ongoing basis. Um, but there's a, there's a Colton Child Psychiatrist uh, at CASIS in Cambridge um, called Dickon Bevington, and he's done, or they've designed uh, an approach called AMBIT, which stands for Adolescentalization Integrative Therapy, get your tongue around that, um, <laughs> And it's an approach that uses um, mentalization and uh, restorative relationships to work with hard-to-reach adolescents to allow them to repair um, relational damage, to learn to express and manage their uh, emotions in a, in a more positive and successful way. And uh, the early findings are that it is reducing um, amongst the young people that don't I'm just going to find it but and, uh, the actual bit where it says oh, this is it so in 2012 um, an uncontrolled pilot evaluation of 63 key problems identified with staff treatment in 15 cases indicated 79% showed improvement of discharge with nine cases which is having occasional or no use alcohol or drug at case closure what that tells you is that AMBIT, this approach, is absolutely working um, for adolescents. And Dick and Bevington um, concludes in one of his papers, he says, um, I a bit, a bit. Um, well, he says, a real priority now is to gather more robust evaluative evidence of effectiveness. The overarching goal is, of course, to divert desperate developmental and psychopathological more adaptive pathways with a view to reducing the frequency and intensity of those outcomes that are most costly in terms of suffering and the financial implications of later treatment options. So, yeah, it's really, really groundbreaking stuff they're doing. Yeah, that that is amazing. And how exciting. I think you can take it as an affirmation from the universe that, that there's a project happening right up the street from you. <laughs> yeah. You're where, where you're meant to be. And uh, I'm really excited to see what comes of all of this. Um, this is an exciting time, and I guess in a way, I you know, I wonder if 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 your relationship with alcohol that's you know hasn't been hasn't been a great thing in your life, and yet it's led you to do great things. And I guess that's a it speaks to our power to not only turn things around but to allow good things to come of the bad things that, that unfold in our life. And um, it's really inspiring to hear all the things that you've done with it. Yeah, I, I completely agree that, um, you know, these things shape us. 
and um, you know, I, I am who I am, and I am where I'm supposed to cut it. Um, so, you know, although there may have been difficult times in the past, that doesn't mean that, you know, they have to remain difficult for the rest of their life, and, and they can be used for, like you say, positive outcomes. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard. Well, that is a is a great note for us to end on. Um, it's been really lovely talking to you, especially after all these years of reading your work. To hear your voice is delightful, and uh, um, I'm really agreed, really great. It's so lovely to speak to you. I wonder if you have any uh, closing words for our listeners. No, I, the only thing I can say is it's January. Uh, yesterday was supposed to be the most depressed day of the year, isn't it? The the Monday following the New Year. Certainly in the UK <laughs> it is anyway, if you believe what you read in the press. And Blue I Monday, would just say yeah. if there's any yeah, Blue Monday, if there's anybody out there doing dry January, please stick with it. Stick stick with stick with it. And you know what, it gets easier, so why don't try why don't try, you know, going beyond January and see how you feel because from where I'm sitting, the longer you go, the better it gets. Fantastic. Lou, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jean, for inviting me. So grateful that you're here and for all that you do. I've been speaking with Louise Rollingson of hangoverfreelife.com, an author, an educator, a health professional, and a tireless recovery advocate. Please check out her blog. You can find my blog at unpickledblog.com. Our Bubble Hour website is still down, but you can always find us in all 202 episodes of our show at blogtalkradio.com slash bubblehour. And you can email me if you'd like to be on the show or have any feedback for Louise, myself, or any of our other guests. Email me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. So that's it for today, everyone. Thanks for listening, and until next time, please take good care. <laughs>